This is the Ether Review, a talk show passing the components of the Ethereum global computing platform and its ecosystem. Building on a basic knowledge of the blockchain, we seek to understand the mechanics behind this new generation computing network and the services it powers. Some of the discussions featured on this show are technical, while others are higher level. First of all, I want to give a shout out for our honorary sponsor, Josh Stern. Data scientist, data experience developer, and web developer. He's been doing work on the back end of a blog I keep meaning to go live with. He is punctual, flexible, and able to effectively interpret vague design ideas. It's been a pleasure working with Josh, who is now my go-to web developer. Joining me today, Stefan Tall is a one-time member of the Ethereum team and one of the founders of Slockit, a project that aims to be Ethereum's bridge to the Internet of Things. Their DevCon 1 presentation was lauded as one of the most stark illustrations of the power of Ethereum. Well worth looking up on YouTube. Thanks for joining me, Stefan. Could you please introduce yourself? Um, yeah, I'm Stefan Tull. I'm the former CCO of Ethereum, and I'm now co-founder and CEO at Slockit. Could you explain what a Slock is? Sure. So... <laughs> Um, I'm going to assume that um, all your listeners are, are very familiar with the concept of, of blockchain. Um, and in a nutshell, what we're doing is we're enabling the enforcement of smart contract in the real world. So in order to do that, you need to have some type of locking mechanism because that's what sm smart contract do uh, ultimately. You know, When you deal with digital currency, they give you access or prevent access to um, a, uh, an amount of digital currency. In the context of the physical world, they're going to give you access to a room, to a car, to a washing machine, to uh, any white good or, or a, a power tool. That's pretty much what they are, access control devices. How is that access control implemented by smart contracts behind the scenes? Sure. Um, so uh, we use uh, two parts of the Ethereum stack. We use the, obviously, the EVM, the virtual machine for the smart contracts. And we use Whisper uh, for the messaging. And that's because um, no one wants to pay uh, a door uh, or use the blockchain and wait uh, for a confirmation every time they open or close, say, their car or their, their home door or their office door. Well, the way it works is, first of all, you need to rent access to the resource. So if you want to rent access to, say, a power drill, you need to uh, rent the power drill for a period of time. And you could give access, granular access, to various other people. The way that's done is identifying you through the DAP, the decentralized DAP, using your public key, if you will. So your, your public identifier. And it says this, uh, say 0x12345 will have access to this apartment, this power drill, this car for a period of one week, starting from the 10th of September, for example. Um, once you get to the door, you scan the door lock, which um, makes your phone contacts the blockchain via Whisper and announce that is now at that door trying to make use of it. Um, the device itself, the lock itself, then checks that you have access, you have rented access to the resource so itself um, by just checking on the blockchain. So we use Whisper messaging to do all the messaging, and the, we use the blockchain to do the renting, the smart contract, the money exchanges, and things like that. This is probably actually a good uh, opportunity to look at what exactly Whisper is in the Ethereum protocol? Because I don't think we've covered it in this show as of yet. Okay. Um, well, uh, the vision of Web3 by Gavin Wood is to have um, a stack of uh, the EVM doing uh, all the uh, decentralized consensus, uh, decentralized 
processing, uh, if you will, uh, for the network. But um, that's just the CPU of the Ethereum computer, if you will. That's uh, that's purely its brains. So it needs a hard drive, and that would be Swarm or IPFS. Um, and it obviously needs a messaging layer to relay messages between its different parts, and that would be Whisper. So Whisper, in a sense, if you're familiar with Telehash, is a little bit similar to Telehash, um, but it's not quite the same in the sense that Whisper is built by default to have um, deep security uh, embedded. Uh, I think Gavin called it pitch black darkness. So uh, dark as in the dark web, um, dark as in plausible deniability that you have or haven't sent a message. Um, so there's that element of privacy uh, built by, by, by default in the protocol. And so together, all of these technologies, um, beyond maybe just locks, uh, what are other possible deployments that you guys envision going forward? You mean of the uh, Ethereum stack in general or, or, or for technology? Uh, no, uh, for for, for uh, Slock, for Slocket, right. the, uh, the suite of tools that, that yeah. fall under the Slocket monkey. Yeah, yeah. So we decided on purpose to start with something very simple because when I was, when I was at Ethereum and I was presenting Ethereum, people were uh, at the beginning quite happy to hear about, you know, all the futuristic example of what the technology w- would enable and so on. But then as we went through uh, approaching the uh, frontier release and post frontier, uh, when Ethereum was actually live, uh, the questions were more around, well, show us apps that use this magical platform that you're telling us about, right? So they want practical example. Um, a good practical example is opening something in the physical world. It makes it really easy for people to grasp the concept behind this technology. You know, you have access to something or you don't have access to something. Who decides the device itself? It's decentralized. Um, there is no third party to tell you whether you have access to this or not. We can then censor you or be uh, maybe forced into censoring you somehow from having access to a particular resource. Um, so we chose something very simple, zero and one, open and close. Uh, that's phase one. Phase two, we're going to look into making this device talk to each other. Um, so if you're familiar with Project Adept, um, I think uh, you'll find some similarities there whereby a, a, an object could be fully autonomous. A washing machine running Android, for example, an Ethereum client could order its own detergent or order its own parts. In fact, that's what exactly Project Adept was all about when, when it existed. I think now it's been renamed Project MTN. Um, it's about having analytics and sort of the, the brains behind uh, all the service that we use today on the internet at the edge of the network so that there is no centralized server to capture your information and sell it to the highest bidder or for it to be sitting on a cloud and getting hacked. So pushing all those analytics, having sort of thick clients, if you will, on the devices themselves, that's something I'm really interested in because I used to work in um, in, in targeted marketing, <laughs> unfortunately, um, and um, I've seen I've, <laughs> I've seen what happens there. You know, with your data, even big companies, even big names, I won't name them, but I've seen you know hard drives unencrypted floating around the office with you know three million people uh, details, uh, card numbers, and so on. So I mean, it's completely unacceptable, and that's just because of human nature. There is no you can put all the regulations you want, all the fines you want. It won't stop humans from making mistakes. Um, if you were to put all this uh, analytics at the edge of the network, you could benefit from targeted marketing still because people like their ads and you know they're not opposite, opposed to advertising or else uh, club cards wouldn't work. Um, but they don't like this big brother thing where someone else, another human or another corporation can control their funds or their private information. 
Now, you just mentioned Project Adept. Now, that was something that IBM was involved with, wasn't it? That's right. So it was a proof of concept between IBM and Samsung. And Samsung had provided the hardware, in this case, a washing machine, and IBM provided the technology stack, which at the time was formed of uh, the Ethereum POC proof of concept 6 running the C++ client. Uh, Whisper, uh, no, actually, sorry, no, not Whisper. It was running Telehash because Whisper wasn't out then. Um, and BitTorrent for the hard drive of that stack, if you will, uh, because IPFS and Swarm both didn't exist. Yeah, that's pretty cool. There was a guy, Paul Brady, who was involved in that, I think, um, from, from memory. Yeah, it was Paul Brody. Paul Brody. Paul Brody, pardon me. Yeah, interesting dude. He um, moved on to, uh, he works at uh, EY now. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny the characters who keep popping up. Um, <laughs> okay, so <laughs> um, so who were the founders of, of Slocket? Yeah, so we, we were very lucky to have um, ex-Ethereum members, so myself uh, included. Uh, but obviously, uh, Christoph uh, was the lead tester. Uh, for the C++ client um, and a series of tools uh, and has contributed heavily to, to the core client. Um, we have Lefteris, um, who's uh, been a core developer uh, for a while at Ethereum and now works for us. Um, and we also have uh, Simon uh, in our team um, who uh, handle, who is a great programmer in terms of um, everything relating to DevOps and connecting things together. So it's uh, also very, very talented uh, hacker uh, so if you've seen the demo of uh, what we've done at DEF CON with the kettle that was turning on and off uh, through the blockchain, uh, he put that together. So uh, we got a we got a, an, an awesome team. And we also have great advisors. We have um, obviously Gavin Wood, the inventor of, of Web3 and, and, and CTO at Ethereum, um, and Christian Reisweiner, the uh, godfather of Solidity, the, the smart contract programming language. So, I mean, the guy wrote the thing, so it makes our smart contract pretty badass. Yeah, that's all-star. So you guys are also working on on something called the Ethereum computer. I, I saw on your website. Um, mm-hmm. Could you elaborate on what that is and kind of what uh, what kind of market that uh, that aims to address? Yeah. So <clears throat> so there's two reasons for the Ethereum computer. Um, the first one is uh, in terms of slock. When you want to have a device that runs the blockchain, you need to have a very deep partnership with lock manufacturers and there, there are literally hundreds, if not thousands of these guys. Now we've approached a lot of them and we're in talks with probably more than we can manage. Um, but integrating the blockchain technology into a smart door lock is not trivial and will take time because these things are being checked, you know, for uh, security issues and so on, and they need to be manufactured. So that could take a, a couple of years. Um, because of that, uh, a better way to introduce slots into homes and offices is to distribute a device that can use existing technology for the IoT, like ZigBee or Z-Wave, which are common protocols for the IoT, uh, but also Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, of course, and, and of course, even direct connectivity through the main, say, um, and have that, in, have that in homes where it can connect to all the existing objects. So if you were to distribute, say, 5,000 of those uh, slot, uh, Ethereum computers, you would have you know, just as many potential uh, connected objects on the network before we even launch. So that gives this user base and that aligns incentives between the Ethereum computer and the Slock uh, vision. Now, the second reason why we think the Ethereum computer is important is because we're Ethereum developers ourselves, and we've seen how hard it is for people to get into this Ethereum stack and build a dApp. So ideal vision of Ethereum is, and that's that's the vision we always had it was through Mist being able to use HTML, JavaScript, 
and CSS to build a front end and connect through the Web3.js um, object to connect to the blockchain uh, via an existing install client and then maybe write a bit of solidity to, for your smart contract. That's it. The reality is people really struggle um, with installing the stack, making the different bits talk to each other. And sometimes the clients can be unstable, especially on the development branch. So there's a lot of frustration there. By distributing a stack that's pre-configured, pre-installed, everything's running perfectly. We've tested it, including obviously a previous Ethereum tester. Um, I, it, it gives people this, this platform where you can just go and develop, right? So just get the device, connect to it via SSH, and off you go. You're developing with Ethereum. Um, you don't have to worry about um, updates or things like that because we'll push updates. But if you wanted to um, overwrite what uh, the updates that we push, that you're completely welcome to as well. If you wanted to transform it into a fancy paperweight, you could do that too. It's your hardware. So it's going to be open hardware from the get-go um, using components that people can uh, find you know, on, in, through commercial channels, meaning that they could rebuild it from scratch if they wanted to without having to purchase one from us. Um. What was the uh, what's the release date for the Ethereum computer? So the alpha of the software will be uh, probably sort of late this year, um, and at that point, people can build their own uh, from home. We'll also start releasing uh, alpha units to uh, people who signed up. Um, in order to sign up, you just need to ask us. By the way, it's uh, on our Slack channel at Slack Slack three thousand. Um, and uh, 2017 for the sexy-looking hardware that uh, you'll be proud to show your mom. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Hey, um, there's something I noticed on your site when I was uh, scrolling through. You meant it said full-blown. You'd be offering full-blown insurance, um, which was really intriguing. Uh, could you uh, could you elaborate on that? Yeah, so I can't go into too much detail because it's uh, based on a partnership that we haven't announced yet. Um, but the idea is that um, one of the challenges of uh, enforcing smart contracts in the real world um, is that I could, for example, walk into your apartment, um, having signed up through anonymously via the blockchain uh, and paid for, but then I could wreck the apartment um, and, well, basically, you'd be, you'd be out of pocket, out of, uh, out of, <laughs> you'd, you'd have a problem there. So the uh, option we see here is to include a deposit. And that works most of the time. You could put a deposit for a drill or something like that. But for bigger things like a car, the deposit becomes um, unmanageable. And so uh, you need some type of insurance. The problem with insurance is that it's never really been done uh, ad hoc. So what we're trying to achieve here is as you uh, purchase access to the device or to the apartment or to the car, um, you're able to automatically enter into an insurance contract. And your, uh, you know, the counterparty uh, does so as well. Uh, so there's, uh, you know, c- civil liability, things of that nature, um, which would uh, give peace of mind to both parties and solve really what is the biggest issue with uh, this stack at the moment, which is, oh, it's going to cost too much with deposits. What if somebody wrecks my place? I don't even know those people, etc. So that solves a big, a big part of the problem. The other, um, the other part of the problem would be solved through reputation. Um, so implementing a reputation system. Now, we're, we probably will use existing stacks because I've seen, for example, Consensus Uport is working on something. I've seen the foundation working on something. Um, and I saw Etherreal at a hackathon recently. They also offered a solution for identity on the blockchain. So all of this will come together as part of a reputation system, which will go a long way in alleviating any worries around apartments getting wrecks or cars getting crashed. 
It seems like what, what's the nature of the uh, what's the nature of the insurance underwriting that you guys are looking at? Are you looking at getting a uh, like a, a a large underwriter to um, to take care of that, or is this going to be a, a community kind of um, kind of thing? Um, I can't really go into the details, sorry, but uh, um, it will be through a partnership that we have with an existing um, uh, sharing economy insurer. One thing we haven't talked about was the whole DAO thing, uh, which um, is, is a pretty big deal as well. And there's also a, a bit of a first where um, actually the, the, the coming pre-sale um, will be not to fund us, as in us, this team, but to fund a DAO that will be in full control of the funds, which will then potentially hire us as a service provider. How do you plan to structure the DAO? Yeah, so the very interesting thing about the DAO is that uh, at the very beginning of the project, since day one, Christophe uh, has always wanted to build a proper DAO from the get-go. And I actually myself was a little bit dubious about this because I was thinking, well, it's pretty hard to build a real DAO uh, in 2015, well, 2016 now. Um, if you look at the Wikipedia page for DAOs, you'll find that actually no one has really done any research on how these things will actually work. There's a lot of science fiction stuff, you know, William Gibson-esque mentions of uh, autonomous computers and things of that nature, which is really exciting, but no one's actually done it. Um, and real autonomous companies is incredibly hard to do because a computer program does not have um, a... Uh, a vision towards an end goal of, uh, say, achieving dominance over a particular vertical. So, for example, if you're a, stock, a shareholder into Apple um, stock, then you know that you're pretty much going to put your money towards the building of iPads and um, iPods and iPhones and whatnot. So you have a rough idea that this relates to uh, computers and the manufacturing of cool hardware to make it accessible to the general public. If you do that with a DAO, you basically just have a bunch of funds sitting in a smart contract under the control of people voting to take specific actions. But these actions could be anything. So somebody could propose, say, if it was the Apple DAO, somebody could propose, hey, you know, let's um, let's let's do gardening instead. I like gardening. I think it's I think it has a future much more so than trying to compete with Apple. Um, and all of a sudden, the DAO would be doing something completely different. Now, arguably, that's also the case in the real world with uh, shareholders and existing companies. But in practice. We humans have a tendency to say, right, this is the vision we have for a company. This is what we're trying to achieve. You know, the so-called elevator pitch. So for Slockit, it's the sharing economy. And how, the big challenge was, how do we make the DAO follow through this concept of sharing economy and investing in sharing economy technologies rather than just spend the money on, on, on I don't know, Ponzi schemes or whatever? That was the big challenge. The second challenge was um, security. No one's really thought this through. Um, I'll give you a very practical example. If I was to invest in your DAO and um, I buy 51% of the shares, all I need to do now is pass uh, or propose a motion to send all the money to me and then vote on it. Uh, since I have 51% of the shares, I'll then get 100% of the money. That's a pretty obvious flaw that no one has really tried to solve. Uh, so what's the solution? So the solution in our case is that we're doing a double voting system. So the first uh, vote is a normal vote, a majority vote, um, as to, uh, you know, say who will be the next service provider for the DAO. And then there's a second vote where people can validate whether um, that was a 51% attack or not. So it's a simple solution. 
And it works very well because we're leveraging Mist, uh, the Ethereum browser, to provide all this via a relatively simple to use uh, GUI. I say relatively because Mist is it's in early phases. So it will take a while before we get to the point where all this stuff is as easy to use as a mobile app. But we hope to get there. And that's what we're building. So um, the structure of the DAO at day one is going to be a basic DAO, as autonomous as we possibly could make it uh, in 2016. And then the final version of the DAO, as we iterate over it in the coming years, uh, post-funding, um, will be fully autonomous. And we hope that it's, it'll be able to do things along the lines of incentivizing humans to do its bidding in the physical world where they can't access something. Um, so we're trying to go as far with that concept as, as, as humanly possible. Uh, what is day one for so the So the day DAO? one for the DAO is the last day of the pre-sale. Uh, what's the first day of the pre-sale? And, uh, <laughs> and, and what's the pre-sale going to look like? Yeah, so the, the, the pre-sale uh, structure is going to be very familiar to people who've uh, uh, participated in this exercise, especially if they've participated in the Ethereum one. Um, so we're trying to keep things pretty simple. The one thing to remember is that because they're not investing in us, they're investing in the DAO, um, all, all the monies will have to be in Ether, right? And that's, that's a big challenge for us financially um, because it, it's never been done before. Basically, they're sending the money to a smart contract. Um, and it, the smart contract being on the Ethereum platform can only speak in Ether. So what we're going to have is partnership with exchanges, including uh, Shapeshift, um, was the uh, first exchange we, we've, uh, we've announced uh, to help us trans- translate you know, things like Bitcoin into Ether. Um, as to when the pre-sale takes place, I'm afraid I'm, I'm going to have to say that uh, it will be Q1 2016, but I'm not going to give any exact dates because you know, I've learned my lesson at Ethereum with the whole two weeks thing. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So, is there going to be a graduated, uh, a graduate, a graduated investment reward system like we saw with the uh, with the Ethereum crowd sale, where the first investors got, I think, uh, two thousand Ethereum per uh, per Bitcoin, and then toward the end it leveled out to one thousand three hundred thirty seven. I think was the uh, was the final um, final reward for uh, per Bitcoin invested. Yeah, it was one three three seven lit. So yeah, the, the it, it'll work exactly like that. Um, actually, credit goes to Vitalik for uh, coming up with that idea of having a, a, an initial plateau, which allows people. That was a challenge actually with Ethereum because we were worried that um, uh, people might go on holiday, for example. Well, people were worried that they might go on holiday and miss the uh, miss the Ethereum uh, pre-sale. So um, Vitalik put in place this plateau for two weeks. So that if you were to take a week-long holiday, you could still participate at the exact same price as everyone else. Then you have this exponential uh, price curve that goes towards another plateau uh, for the last couple of days where the price has reached its peak, um, allowing people to participate even though they forgot they, there was a pre-sale going on. So it's a pretty clever model, and we're definitely going to use that. So how have you found operating in the Ethereum space uh, as opposed to traditional corporate employment? And how do you see the space evolving over the coming year? I mean, you're a real veteran. Yeah, I mean, two years is an eternity in that space, yeah. Um, it feels like one, too. <laughs> so that might partially answer your question. <laughs> um, I, I think it's, it's, it's quite different. I mean, the positive aspect is that you can 
you can have people like Vitalik who started at, what, 19 when he started Ethereum and have amazing success um, in a field that he really loves. Um, and I think that's that's the fantastic part about it. You know, there's none of that. What degree do you hold? And, you know, how many years of university have you done before you even considered for a job? I mean, if you're good at what you do and uh, people like it, then you can have success. And Vitalik proves that. Um, that's the part I really love about it. It's that freedom. Um, the negative side of it, I suppose, is, uh, well, that freedom. Um, and that's, there's, there, anyone uh, and their dog can go and, and submit an idea. And as long as they unfortunately have sometimes, you know, they might be deceptive about certain things. And there's, that's why we're seeing so many scams. Um, it's not regulated. And that's a good thing in a, in a sense, because it allows small players to go and, and participate in the space. Uh, but it's not regulated. And that's also a problem because unfortunately, regulations are not always bad. I mean, they, they're stopping a lot of bad guys that are not getting stopped in the Bitcoin space. So we saw that, you know, I forgot there was that, um, that scam coin, um, that was, uh, promoted at the last Miami conference. I forgot the name of it. Um, was it Paycoin or? Yeah, it was something like that. And, you know, it was, it was a real shame to see these guys have the right to go on stage like, like everyone else and, sort of the community knows it's a scam, but the conference organizers just let it happen because they're getting paid. And I, I think that's messed up um, because we all knew what it was. I mean, if you read the Reddit comments, everyone figured it out. You know, everyone who had any any brains would, would, would know it was a scam. So um, I'm, I'm a little bit concerned about this because it gives the space a bad, um, a bad reputation. I know that uh, when I first told my parents about what I was doing, they said, oh my God, Bitcoin, you know, you're doing drugs. You know, that's, 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 that's pretty sad. Um, the other problem I find, and so that was the first, the first issue sort of the pros and cons of no regulation and that total freedom. Um, the second point I'm a little bit concerned about is right now there's an awful lot of hype. Um, and hype is sometimes really cool because it's exciting and it gets the community going and so on. But hype is um, also sometimes very dangerous. So I, I was approached, for example, by a high ranking member of uh, uh, the French government. Um, as part of a, a consulting project. And in his document that he had prepared uh, to the rest of his colleagues, it said, first line, blockchain technology is incredibly interesting because it scales very well. And that's obviously, as you all know, the opposite of the truth. The truth is that's one of its major flaws. Um, so that means that some, somewhere, somehow, someone went and sold this guy this concept of, yeah, it's really good because it scales. Um, meaning they themselves had no idea what they were talking about. And because the space is brand new, people have a tendency to just accept it as if, as if it was the truth. So what's going to happen is you're going to have all this hype about how it scales and, and it's better than Oracle and it's better than private databases. Um, and then all those banks that are currently spending a lot of money on proof of concepts are going to be pretty disappointed and say, you know what, blockchain is rubbish. It will never work. Actually, nothing's further from the truth. Blockchain is amazing and it will work but not for the reasons that it's sold to them, right? Do you see what I mean? I do. Yeah, I do. Ex I see exactly what you mean. Um, but I wonder, I mean, you, and you're probably the perfect question to ask this, even though it's completely uh, off, the top, off the topic of, of Slocket. And that is, what do you think of uh, Open Ledger and, uh, and comparable solutions? I know there's, um, uh, there's another one that... Um, Hyperledger is involved in, although Hyperledger backs uh, back is mm -hmm. involved in Openledger as well. Um, uh, yeah, what do you think of those of those kind of practical Byzantine fault tolerant uh, based solutions? 
<clears throat> I don't know them um, obviously in detail because I haven't looked into their stack, so I can't comment on that. Um, the con- but I think I could make a comment around general general private chains or what's called what people call permission blockchains or private chains, whatever is the cool name for the of the day. I, I think they don't really make much sense, you know, to be honest. Um, when um, you look at Bitcoin um, and you look at what makes Bitcoin special, what makes Bitcoin very very special is that there's six point five billion dollars of value on a piece of software that runs on the internet, the internet being the most dangerous network, uh, obviously, ever. Um, if you were to put 10 bucks on the internet just for, for, for grabs, you know, it'll be stolen within seconds. You know, it doesn't matter who you are. You could be, even be a charity. Somebody will come and take it. Um, never mind $6.5 billion. So the beauty of Bitcoin is that through openness, and through <clears throat> um, uh, this complete uh, uh, total transparency around security, by having the entire code base accessible um, by anyone, um, they still manage to secure all this value, right? They didn't use VPN. They didn't use firewalls. Um, they used openness. And I think that's, that's, that's tremendous. And that's what makes blockchain so interesting. And that the fact that they're accessible by anyone, the fact that anyone can use Bitcoin without having to use an online wallet, they can just download the software from, from SourceTree or, or whatever site they use, GitHub, and then uh, compile it and run it. Um, I think that's wonderful. Um, Ethereum is wonderful because anyone can go and make, access, make use of this world computer um, and only pay for what they use. So it's the true cloud, if you will. It's not owned by anyone. Um, that's the beauty of it because these things, these things should really be public goods. Um, it's like water and electricity and gas, right? It's, it's almost a basic human right uh, to have access to technology today. If you don't have access to technology, you're not going to get a job pretty much when you're older or you probably live in a country which unfortunately doesn't have access to technology and is probably falling behind. Um, so these things should be public, in my opinion. And, and to say, you know, to, 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 to direct resources towards making them private, that makes no sense to me. So there was this this previous example of um, uh, you know this this famous uh, operating system manufacturer uh, which offers uh, now on their cloud um, you know the possibility to deploy uh, an Ethereum node. Um, wow, yeah, great. Now I can test, I suppose, without having to bother installing all this stuff myself. But what if there were to be you know a, a million of those units running? Wouldn't it be overriding the public network, and now it's all under the control of Microsoft. I think that's worrying. I don't. I don't see the point of doing that. Is that is that a potential worry for Ethereum that the uh, that a bunch of nodes may be deployed by say by a, a single party like Microsoft or um, or you know whoever you whoever you choose to be the uh, the bad guy in this situation and then uh, and then used to attack the network. Yeah, and uh, yeah. I had actually written a blog post that I never, never released around uh, how it could all end. It was titled, I, I might release it one day. Um, <laughs> I was trying to find failure modes for Ethereum um, because a lot of people were claiming that Ethereum uh, would fail because of this, because of that. And, it, you know, nonsensical stuff because, you know, they were upset at the technology or whatever. They were not using good arguments, um, but they are failure modes for Ethereum that nobody really talks about. Um, what if, for example, Google decides to take an interest in blockchain technology and as they release Chrome, say Chrome version 64, has a, a blockchain baked in and it's running something similar to Ethereum. They could replicate it pretty quickly. Um, now, all of a sudden, 
the world has access to this technology, but it's not Ethereum anymore. And because we're talking about Google, potentially this has also a failsafe um, because they might say, well, you know, no one should be anonymous and we need a way to stop bad guys from doing bad things. So we'll have those, uh, you know, those, those back doors right inside the code. And no one could do anything about it. Everyone would forget about Vitalik, Ethereum and, and the rest. Um, it'll be his, ancient history. And that will be for the general public. The acceptance of the blockchain will be done through this mainstream platform that removes all that makes the blockchain beautiful. So, you know, part, part, partial anonymity, pseudonymity at the very least. Um, and in the context of Whisper and Swarm, potential, potential total anonymity, as well as, you know, um, the lack of, of, um, of control by a central entity. And then what would happen, obviously, is Microsoft in their new browser would release their own chain and, and Firefox would probably follow suit. Um, and then you just have a standards war and it'll be very boring. Embrace, extend and extinguish, if you will. Well, we wouldn't want to be evil. <laughs> right. Um, okay, yeah. I mean, I suppose yeah, I suppose I do see that uh, that is a possibility. But, I mean, why haven't we seen something like that go on? I mean, you would have thought that with the massive uh, army of developers that these uh, corporations have, you would, I would have thought that they would have recognised the power of this technology and... Uh, and attempted to outpace the development of the the rate of development of the open source community by now already. Yeah, because this technology is not a threat yet. Um, you know, Ethereum, when it was at the height of its popularity, if you will, I think it was sort of around just around the, the pre-sale. Um, uh, you know, some people were saying, oh, you know, the government is going to come over and stop you. Maybe you've been infiltrated already. You don't know it. I mean, all sorts of paranoia and, and nonsense. The reality is nobody cares because right now there's the community is what, you know, 100,000 people. And I, that's being very, very generous, you know, in terms of the size of the community. I don't know how big it really is, but I'd be surprised if it was more than that. Um, you know, Come back when it's 10 million people, 20 million people, then probably we'll be have a different conversation. But at the moment, this stuff is not even on, on people's radar because it's, it's, it's ultra geeky. Um, a cool part of Ethereum and a way to uh, bypass this scenario that I just described regarding, you know, some potential uh, big player coming over and steamrolling the industry uh, would be to actually make it very easy to access, make it very simple for people to go and build up decentralized applications. So if you're a web developer, you should be able to build a decentralized application without having to learn a very complicated language or a very complicated platform. And that would force cool applications that have nothing to do with, you know, maybe finance that could be completely unrelated um, to, to exist and to be adopted by uh, the mainstream public, um, which over time would give um, the platform its autonomy, if you will. And I'd, I'd really love to see that happen. So that's the happy scenario. That's utopia. And the other one was dystopia. I'd like to go back to something you mentioned earlier about scalability, because um, I've just been reading about the Lightning Network proposal um, for Bitcoin, and I know that uh, Ethereum has something similar for settling transactions off-chain um, called uh, Raiden. And I wonder, do you? Uh, this is complete. This is very much very new to me. I mean, I haven't really given it any uh, any deep examination, and I haven't heard a lot of talk about it apart from the. Uh, apart from the presentation at DevCon 1. Um, could you, uh, I mean, just as an expert yourself, could you enlighten us at all about that? Yeah, so, I mean, I, you know, 
Raiden is is Heiko his uh, project. Um, Heiko has his own company. He's, I don't think he works for. I mean, could be wrong. He might still be working partially for Ethereum. But in any case, Raiden is not core part of what Ethereum is trying to build, as I understand it. Um, and you're right; it's a counterpart to the Lightning Network. Um, and both both sound really interesting. Off chain transactions obviously make some sense. Much rather see true scalability on the blockchain rather than build um, alternatives off chain. So I'm much more interested in, for example, what Vitalik is building with the Serenity release of Ethereum um, and the adoption of Casper and proof of stake and light clients and chain pruning. You know, that stuff to me makes the most sense. Just like anonymity, for example, on chain, instead of resolving it by sticking a private uh, a chain behind a VPN and coding in a private chain, what we should really be doing is use this money and those resources to go in and research zero knowledge proof and potential homomorphic encryption and try to bake this into existing during complete chains, including Ethereum. Um, that's the type of research I'm, I'm more interested in. Um, cool. Well, you know what? I've actually, you, uh, you cover the stuff so quickly uh, and so concisely, Stefan. I, I think you've exhausted any question that I, uh, I can really... Um, come up with now. Is there anything that you think people really need to know about that isn't being covered? That's a good question. Um, no, I mean the only thing I'd say, if if um, if anything, is you know go check out the the Mist um, um, browser, and which currently is a, a wallet, right? Uh, from from the Ethereum Foundation, and it's absolutely awesome. I was playing with it yesterday. Um, because we're obviously doing this multi-sig for the stock at GmbH. Um, and I was just amazed by the work that these guys have done, Alex van der Sende and Fabian and, and the rest of the team, because um, it, it looks beautiful and um, it's really fun. And then you can deploy those contracts. They put some tutorials on the Ethereum website on how you could build those um, DAOs and, and stuff like that and your own multi-sig wallet. And it's really easy to follow. And I think people would be surprised how, how far they've advanced on that side of things. And that's the part of Ethereum I'd like to see uh, more developed. Cool. Awesome. Um, sure. So where can people find, uh, find you on, uh, online, Stefan? And, and where can people find out more about Slocket? Yeah, so uh, we have um, a Slack channel, which is like a chat tool on uh, slock.it port 3000. Uh, we have a website at slog.it, of course. Uh, the best way to follow what we're doing is Twitter because that's the first place where we post information, uh, Slockit project. Um, and I'm myself pretty much 24-7 on the Slack uh, and Christoph and Simon, always happy to answer questions. Fantastic. Thanks so much for joining me, Stefan. This has been a really enlightening interview. And, uh, Thank you. And it's great to have the opportunity to ask some of the questions that I would normally um I would normally spend hours wading through kind of Reddit posts and other stuff uh, to, um, to come up with um, real answers for. So it's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. Have a good rest of the day. Thanks again, Stefan. Kerry Guy, an old friend and sound engineer, was instrumental in helping me produce this episode. Show notes, credits, and links can be found at letstalkbitcoin.com and on Twitter, at EtherReview. Because I'm on holiday, contact at etherreview.info has been left in between hosting services and unreachable. I'll get back onto that soon, but in the meantime, you can reach me through Twitter if need be. Thanks, guys.